You know, I love how music has this ability to take our eyes off of us and put our focus solely on Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I, I love the songs we sang, the time we got to spend together this morning in worship. It's incredible. But you know, as much as I love music and uh, the words of music, I'm really not good at hearing melody and those type things. And so oftentimes what happens is I'll be with some people who they know music and they know like when a note gets played wrong or someone misses a key and they're like, oh my gosh, that song was awful. And I'm sitting here going, it was great. What's wrong with you? But I just don't hear those things. It really was God's uh, humor that I spent two years playing the violin and four years in choir in high school because I know nothing about music stuff. But then something happened. I got invited to a middle school band concert. And I don't know if you've ever been to a middle school band concert, uh, but it's a unique experience because even though I don't know what music sounds like, I knew immediately what it didn't sound like. You see, when you're at a middle school band concert and the sixth graders are about to play, they prepare you for it. Like, hey, listen, these kids, and I like to go at Christmas time because I know Christmas songs better than others and I can like guess those a little bit easier. And so if you go at Christmas time and typically they'll say, hey, these sixth graders, they're doing awesome. Most of them, I never touched an instrument until August. And so listen to how much progress they've made. And all of a sudden they start to play Jingle Bells. And I'm looking at Megan like, what song are we on? Like, this is not Jingle Bells. But then the eighth graders come up and the eighth graders come and they've been playing for several years and they give you a little uh, schematic of songs to follow. And it's amazing what happens after playing an instrument for several years that now when they all play together in harmony, I could actually hear the song. I didn't have to ask Megan, who she played the clarinet, she knows all this music stuff, I don't. I could ask her say, hey, I know this song. This is Sleigh Ride or this is you know, Frosty the Snowman, whatever it may have been, I could hear the music when everyone was playing together in the same harmony and in unity. And I'm afraid, if we're honest, so often what happens in church is people come in here to hear Jesus. They come in here to see the glory of God and they are as I was when the sixth graders were playing, trying to figure out what in the world is happening because whatever they're saying is going on is not what they're playing. And I'm afraid if we're not careful that we can become so selfish that people miss Jesus because we're so focused on our own preferences, on our own stuff, that people come in and out of worship services like this one or Bible studies or whatever it may be and they miss Jesus for lack of unity. And Paul knew this. We're gonna be in Philippians chapter two this morning and Paul was keenly aware of this danger. You see, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Paul is on house arrest. He's literally chained to a Roman guard. And Paul is writing the book of Philippians to 
God's people in the area of Philippi. And one of the things about Philippians, it's one of the most encouraging books, maybe in all of the Bible. It's got a theme of joy. In every single chapter, Paul is pointing the people to joy and he's sharing his appreciation and affection for the people of God there. And he knew that these people loved the Lord. He knew that these people were facing adversity. And in Philippians 1.27, what he does is he calls them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in chapter two, he begins to flesh that out a little bit. And what he does is he begins to warn them of the dangers of disunity in a church. Because he knew if we begin to live for me and my preferences and my wants, and we stop living for Jesus and uniting around Jesus and his mission to bring his goodness and his glory to the world through his people, that's when things go bad. And this morning in Philippians chapter two, verse one, he is going to help us see that it's because of the blessings we have in Jesus that believers can pursue unity with one another for God's glory. If we miss nothing else from this chapter, we must walk away knowing we pursue unity because of Jesus not because of us. And in Philippians chapter two, what I believe we can see clearly are four reasons we can pursue unity because of Jesus. So if you have found it, Philippians two, verse one, if you would stand with me as we read this together, if you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screens with me here. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the scripture, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. What a rich passage 
this is. Lord, this morning as we come together and we have worshiped you in song, God, may you prepare our hearts to worship you as we hear from your word. Holy Spirit, you make your word effective in our hearts and lives. God, you do what needs to be done in us both personally and corporately together this morning. Lord, I pray so often, and you know I mean it, Lord, no one needs to hear what Josh Ogle has to say, but we need to hear from you, Lord. And so in this time, let me fade away and let Jesus be lifted high. May you exalt his name this morning, and may we leave this place surrendered to Jesus alone, to the glory of you. Lord, we need you, and we praise your name. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He begins to outline in Philippians chapter 2 four reasons that because of Jesus we pursue unity. And he doesn't start where we think he does. You see, there's a temptation for us when we come to this passage to skip verses 1 and 2 and go to verses 3 and 4. Because that's the command, that's the negative command here that says, hey, hey, don't be selfish. Hey, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in everything, think of others first. And we wanna jump to that because it's a good principle. It's a good way to live. But if we jump to that, we miss the power that's found in verses one and two. And what he does in verses one and two is he helps us to see that Jesus is our power for unity. You see, he doesn't start with the command, he starts with what Jesus has done. And he, in verse one, he gives us four if statements that we are to not just know as a fact of life, a fact that's in the Bible, but it's a experience that each of us ought to have if we truly know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And he looks and he's, if, don't get caught up on if, some of your translations may even say, since then, it's, these are statements of fact that he's saying, because this is true, we pursue unity. And he looks and he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, that word consolation means encouragement. And he looks at him and says, hey, have you been encouraged by what Jesus has done for you? If you have following Jesus, has there ever been a time where you've just been encouraged by Jesus? If that is true, if you've ever experienced the love of God in your life, if you truly believe that God has given us Holy Spirit in us, in fellowship, it really that word is more a partnership that he has made us his partners to bring his goodness, to share the gospel, to bring his glory into his world. If you have experienced his incredible mercy and affection or this deep care, this is how you are to live. And for some of us this morning, many of us have been following Jesus for so long, I'm afraid that we may have forgotten some of the power that's in those truths. For those of us, we've become content knowing the facts and we've given up ever actually experiencing them in our own lives. I loved what 
Amelia and Greg said this morning about words matter. And when I walked in to practice this morning, you know, there's just times you can just sense, okay, God, you're doing something right now in this moment. You don't need to make a joke. Like those are good times to sense those. And you could sense that the words they were singing among all four of them this morning weren't just a song to lead worship, but they were testimonies of their lives. And these truths in verse one are intended to be testimonies of our lives. Have you experienced this kind of power in your life, follower of Jesus? Have you been encouraged? Have you seen his love? Are you partnering with him in his power? And do you remember where you were when he found you and shed his mercy and grace on your life? That is where we start. We don't start with what we can do. We start with what Jesus has done. And in verse two, he begins to transition into the command and he says to them, fulfill my joy or make my joy complete. Paul loved the people in Philippi. It's evident when you look at his writing and he is calling them to now live in light of these truths. That if these are true, then you are to live like this. And the command is to simply to be of like mind, of loving one another, of having the same love, of having the same purpose and having the same attitudes together. And Paul calls them to live together as one. He calls them to live in unity, all moving in the same direction, pulling together for the cause of Christ. If you'll notice, there were four if statements, right? If you look at that verse, there's also four statements of oneness. And what Paul is doing here is he is intentionally showing us that those four truths ought to lead to four evidences of unity among the people of God. And he is calling them to see that not only is Jesus our power for unity, but Jesus is our passion that unites us. You see, Jesus is the passion of every single follower of Jesus. He is our common denominator. He is the one who died to set us free. He is the one who made us family. It is because of Jesus that you and I, no matter what we do, what we like, what we have, we can come together and unite around Jesus. And that is incredible. That is a passion that we all share. And it is incredible to me that God can take people from different walks of life, People that look different, people that smell different, people with different amounts of money in their bank accounts. And he can bring them all together into a unified, a united family of God. That is an incredible thing. And 
I, I love the fact that some of you that are in this room this morning, we don't have much in common, but I can say with full conviction this morning and confidence, man, I love you. And I would have never known you if it had not been for Jesus. Because Jesus is able, when we're passionate about Jesus, he's able to overcome every single barrier that would stand in the way of fellowship. He's able to overcome every single barrier that would stand in the way of moving in the same direction with the same passions. Because Jesus is that great. And in verses three and four, then he moves in to humility. Because if our passion is Jesus, it will produce humility in our hearts. You and I, of our own strong will, of our own efforts, will never produce the humility that Jesus alone can produce in our hearts. And when our passion is Jesus, he begins to help us see others differently. He begins to help us see us differently. One of my, uh, one of the commentators, pastors that I read, he's long gone now. His name's Warren Wearsby. And he makes a statement. He says, in this passage, we see what true joy is. And true joy is Jesus first, others next, and yourself last. And Paul knew that the way to complete his joy was for their passion to be for Jesus. Because you see, humility is not thinking less of me, but it's thinking less of myself less. It is this ability that only God can do to help me see people as he sees them. So that now I can look and say, Yes, I have issues. Yes, I have hurts. Yes, there's been things that have happened to me, but it's not about me. That selfish ambition or conceit is this picture of a man or a woman who's trying to build all of their life to build themselves up. Of a person who's trying to make themselves look good so other people will think of them. And what a passion for Jesus does is it begins to tear down that pride in our hearts. It begins to tear that down so that now I can look and say, yeah, I have preferences. Yeah, I have things that I love, but all those can be secondary because Jesus matters more. And when G my passion for Jesus is greater, is greater than my preferences in whatever area, we experience the unity that only God can bring. You will never produce the humility that it takes to bring about unity in your own strength. You will never in your own strength begin to esteem others better than yourself. In your own strength, your interests will always be more important than the interests of others. And that's why we have to have a passion for Jesus. That's why it starts with his power and us experiencing his love, his encouragement, partnering with him and knowing the benefits we have with Holy Spirit in us that produces that passion for Jesus. And this is true on a church-wide level, but it's also true on a personal level as well. 
As I was reading through some stories this week, I came across a story of a pastor out of London in the late 1800s. His name was F.B. Meyer. And he was a fairly well-known pastor. He did a lot of good things for the kingdom of God, but he lived in the same time as some people that you may or may not have heard of if you've been in church for a while, as by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And F.B. Meyer's church was just down the street from Charles Spurgeon's church. And what would happen for F.B. Meyer was he would stand outside his church on Sunday mornings and he would watch carriages after carriage go right past his church to go to Charles Spurgeon's church. And the thing that was so impactful about F.B. Meyer's story is that he never resented Spurgeon. In fact, he prayed God's blessings over Spurgeon's life. See, they would often speak at conferences together. And when Spurgeon would speak, the room would be full. And then F.B. Meyer would get up to speak and he'd watch the people stand up and walk out. Listen, some of y'all have never seen that before, but that is some of the most uh, humiliating and dehumanizing things that can ever happen is for you to stand up with something to say and people say, no, I don't wanna hear it. Now, if you have kids or you remember having grandkids, it happens all the time, but that's a different setting. But F.B. Meyer looked and he said this. This was about another pastor that came on later that was more famous than him. And he was able to look and say, the hand of God is on these men. And I'm thankful that people are hearing Jesus through them. You see, in our own strength, we don't come to that conclusion. In our own strength, it's about me. It's about the fact that I'm not getting the attention I need. I'm not getting what is for me. But when Jesus is our passion, we are able to look at others and appreciate the gifting of God on their life. Because the point is that people see Jesus, not that they see me. Not only is Jesus our power and our passion, but in verses five through eight, he begins to shift and tells us that Jesus is the paradigm through which we see our life. He calls them and he commands them, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He looks at the people, he writes to the people and he begins to say, you are to look to Jesus as both your example and the attitude by which you live. This, that word paradigm, it really conveys it well because it looks at not only a model to follow, but a worldview to think through. And what he calls the people to is to live like Jesus. Because what we see in verses five through eight is that Jesus lived a life defined by humility before he came to earth, during his ministry on earth. And after he was exalted, he was defined by humility. He was selfless, he was sacrificial, and he was a servant. And Jesus lays out for us a model and an attitude to carry. You see, in verse five, he begins to talk about the fact of who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He made himself of no reputation that 
The New King James here translates this a little bit different, but what he's getting to the point of is that Jesus did not consider his divine privileges as something to cling to, but as something that he could set to the side so that he could put on human nature. It's not saying this notion of form, it's not saying that Jesus really wasn't God, but literally that is in his essence, in his nature, he was divine and he added humanity to that divine nature. This is where theologians get these big fat words like hypostatic union and those type things because it's conveying the reality that Jesus was God and all of those divine privileges he set aside so that he could come down to us. It's a little heady. Now, I think there's a TV show that really helped me understand this a little bit. Uh, it's on CBS, Paramount Plus, if you're a streamer. Um, and it's called Undercover Boss. I don't know if y'all ever seen that show or a, a clip of it. But the whole premise is these high-level executives of these big companies, they set aside their privileges as an executive to go work as like a fry cook or a cash, uh, a customer service representative. And it's all for the purpose of getting to know the company and make the company better. And I think that really gives us a good example of what Jesus did for us. When he came to earth, he didn't stop being God, but he became the one and the only God-man. And that's what Jesus did for us. And you know, as much as I love to talk theology and really dive in and nerd out on those things, there's been thousands of pages written on these couple verses to talk about the divine and human nature of Jesus. But it's possible that our theology will make us miss the point of the verse. The point of the verse isn't for us to marvel at the God-man Jesus. The point of the verse is for us to look and see the selfless nature that Jesus had when he came from heaven to earth. That Jesus traded down Jesus, when he came from heaven to earth, he traded immortality for mortality. He traded incorruptibility for corruptibility. Jesus traded down because he loved us, because he loved us so much. He sacrificed all the privileges of heaven for the purpose of making us part of the family of God. You see, all of these things Jesus did, being obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, there was a purpose behind it. And the purpose wasn't in Jesus' mind for Jesus. The purpose was for the glory of God. And that glory meant all of us being in the family of God. You see, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays, and it's called his high priestly prayer. He's praying for his followers. And the thing that struck me most about that prayer, it always has, is he asked that his people would be one. Jesus left heaven to come to earth. One of the goals was that his people would be united in 
Jesus. And that's an incredible thing. That is an attitude that you and I are to live with, a way that we are to see our world. It should change how we live. See, for some of us, this means that at work, you need to begin seeing other people the way Jesus sees them. For some of us at home, we need to start seeing our spouses and our kids the way Jesus sees them, looking to serve rather than be served. Being okay sacrificing for the good of others. We are called to live with the attitude of Christ. And so often we miss it. So often we miss it and in a subtle way, it becomes about me and people serving me. And while we might never say that out loud, in a moment of honesty, we might be able to say, yeah, there's a lot of times I'm more concerned about me than I am Jesus. And that doesn't let me serve others the way I've been called to serve. Because watch this. When we live this way, when we have this attitude, when we're living through this paradigm in our lives, we see that Jesus is our prize. Jesus is the prize for which we live. In verses nine through 11, we find out that because he humbled himself in this way, God exalted him. God exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name that God exalted him so that people would surrender their life to Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, that every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, we, we have a rich understanding of this idea of savior. Oftentimes we don't have as good an understanding of what it means that Jesus is our Lord. And what we see in this verse is the name that he was exalted to have was Lord. And Lord conveys a notion of surrendering all of my life to Jesus. All of my thoughts, all of my wants, all of my hopes, all of my dreams. I surrender to Jesus because he's so much better. Not to be forced to do that. That was never his desire. His desire is that we would see him for who he is. Experience his encouragement, his love, his mercy and grace. Be invited as partners into his mission through the power of Holy Spirit in us. And we would willingly lay down our lives and say, Jesus, all I have is yours. You take me. You do with me what you desire. That is our attitude. That is our prize. If I'm honest with you, just I have seen that I come from a family that really loves our own name. That I, I can see from generation to generation in my family of these deep-seated love of self. And there are few things in my life that God in his grace and his mercy has had to make me aware of is that in my flesh, I really love the name Josh Ogle. That in my flesh, I love when people are pleased with Josh Ogle. That in my flesh, I love when people are impressed by Josh Ogle. 
And by God's grace and mercy through passages like this, we discover that it's not about my name. It's not about your name. It's about the name of Jesus. That Jesus would be lifted high because I believe I'm not alone in this thought process of wanting people to think well of us. In church, as we come together, as we come to the end of this passage, it is my hope and prayer that you and I see that Jesus is our prize. That Jesus is the name worth living for. Because how sad would it be that someone comes into this place to find Jesus, to find his hope, his love, his encouragement, and they miss it because we're not living for Jesus. How sad would it be that people walk away and the name that they remember is not Jesus. It is only in Jesus that we find life. And God has exalted him. And we are called to live and pursue unity together, humbly by his power, with Jesus as our passion, living with his paradigm of life, so that we can lead others to the prize of Jesus. In just a moment, they're gonna come and they're going to lead us in a song. And what I want us to do is I want to invite us to pray. Last week, Pastor Keith, he started a series on prayer. And I think the best way that you and I can respond to this passage this morning is by humbling ourselves, surrendering our wants, our desires to Jesus. You see, he is our strength.